Alright, let's go ahead and get started. There's a copy of Psalm 39 going around. If you don't have uh, one with you, a Bible with you or anything, or an app that you can use, there's a handout there for that. So let's pray. Our God in heaven, thank you so much for your kindness to us. You've sustained us. Your steadfast love fills the earth. As we see the bounty of that steadfast love and simple things like gorgeous flowers exploding open and sending forth their colors and... Um, attracting bees and butterflies. Lord, how beautiful is that? And we thank you for that. We thank you, Lord, for our time together. We thank you for this morning, being able to wake up this morning and and have fresh water and clean water to come and uh, to be together. Lord, we thank you for all of these things. We pray that you would guide us as we work through Psalm 39 and keep us in your care. And may we grow and may we flourish from this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're going to be at Psalm 39. So let me read. So watch, make sure you watch for repeats, uh, any connections to previous psalms, any that you think of, that maybe is a connection of uh, psalms after the, this, because these are usually lightly put together in groups, and there's a, there's a kind of a thematic aspect here. So, to the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as... The wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Yahweh, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I I am spent by the hostility of your hand when you discipline a man with rebukes for sin. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely, all mankind is a mere breath. Selah. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me, that I may smile again. Before I depart and am no more. That was Psalm 39. What are some things maybe that stick out to you that you saw? Maybe there are repeats, repeated thoughts, repeated statements, things that attach, attach it to previous psalms. Oh yeah, very good. He holds his tongue in the presence of the wicked, but he opens his mouth in the presence of the Lord. Okay, so keep that thought in mind. Good. What else? The brevity of life. Yes. Okay, I'm going to say somewhere in the class that it's almost like David is praying Ecclesiastes. Right? What else? What else do you notice? Okay, well, let's get going then. So I'm calling this stewing before the wicked. (laughs) For whatever reason, it makes good sense to me. Stewing before the wicked. And so, this is kind of the way it breaks down, okay? I'm going to, you can go in different directions, but here's what it looks like. Pent up, verses 1 through 3, played out, verses 4 through 6. And I think the centerpiece is verse 7, believing ballast. And then verses 8-11 through 11 is praying on. And verses 12-13, through 13, parting words. So that's how I'm going to pursue this, this psalm. Okay, so there's my outline. Okay? We need to start at the very, very beginning to the choir master, to Jedithan, a psalm of David. Remember, as I've said repeatedly, that is part of Scripture. It's in, in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually part of the first verse. 
So even the Hebrew trans, uh, writers and uh, copyists always thought that was Scripture. And so shame on, a, on a 21st and 20th century scholars who think that maybe it's optional. It's not optional, it's part of Scripture. And so we're going to talk about this just briefly. So as you look at it, what are some things you notice at the, at, in that inscription there? Nothing. It's early. I know it is. Come on. Ah, good question. Okay, hold that thought. Good. I'm sorry? Oh, that God is the choir master? That's possible. Yep. Okay. All right, well, let's walk through this very again. Notice again, it's meant for corporate tabernacle and temple worship. It's to the choir master. It's not a choir that's just singing off on my own somewhere out in the woods. This is meant for corporate worship, okay? We keep getting that over and over again throughout the psalm to remind us the psalms are written and meant for all of God's people, okay? For us to use. So then, who's Jedithan? Okay, this kind of goes along with something Steve is bringing up. So let me go through then some passages of Scripture in 1 Chronicles and 2 Chronicles. Whoop, whoop, whoop. See how we're doing that series for sermon. All right, so in 1 Chronicles 16, 41 through 42, then uh, with them were Haman and Jedithan and the rest of those chosen and expressly named to give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. Haman and Jedithan had trumpets and cymbals for the music and instruments for sacred song. The sons of Jedithan were appointed to the gate. So they kept the gate as people worshipped and came in. So notice the role of Jedithan. He's part of the choral, the choral group, if you want to call it that. He's one of the leaders intended to help lead the musical aspect of the corporate worship. Okay? And I, I bring this up because you'll find Jedithan uh, mentioned two more times in two other psalms. And so this goes on in, set, in 1 Chronicles 25. David and the chiefs of the service also set apart for the service the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jedithan, interesting phrase, who prophesied with lyres, with harps, and with cymbals under the direction of their father Jedithan, who prophesied with the lyre in thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. Just as a side note, what do we almost always think prophecy means? I'm sorry? Telling the future. Okay? But notice in the context, what does prophesying have to do with? Yeah, praise. Telling forth the goodness of God. So never forget that because too many people fall into the trap of thinking prophecy is only about telling the future. Most often, the prophets didn't just tell, they told the future, some of them did but they were foretelling or uh, telling forth the, who God is and what He has done, is doing, and will do for His people. So very fitting that Jedithan prophesied by musical instruments in the praise and the worship of God, okay? So that means then, seeing how it is Pentecost, right? And Peter quotes Joel, talks about the Spirit poured out so that we're all prophets. Every time you open your mouth to sing the praises of God, you are prophesying. Okay, that didn't create any reaction. Something's not right here. Every time you open your mouth to sing the praises of God, you are part of a prophetic band. You are prophesying. You are telling forth who God is and what He has done, is doing, and will do for His people. And you have a long line of prophets that you are a part of, like Jedithan. So then, in 2 Chronicles 35, 50, by the way, you can go to other places. Verse, uh, in, in 1 Chronicles, you can find this again and again. In 2 Chronicles 35, 15. The singers, the sons of Asaph, were in their place according to the command of David and Jedithan the king's seer. That's interesting. Jedithan the king's seer. The, his his uh, prophet, if you want to call him that. Like Nathan was a prophet in that sense. And the gatekeepers were at each gate. And so Jedithan has a specific role. And so it's no surprise then that he's actually mentioned uh, in the introduction of this psalm, in the inscription, that this is for him to lead. That's the point. He's to lead this because he is prophesying with lyres and cymbals and leading and singing. Okay? Does that make sense? Anybody have any questions about any of that? No. 
All of Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that last phrase, that specific phrase, the king's seer, Nathan would have also been called, for example, the king's the king's prophet in the sense that he was the one who was close to him. Right. Yeah, he was, yes. Yeah. But it's the fact that he and his sons and his descendants then prophesy by using musical instruments and singing and leading and singing and so forth. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Taking that stuff serious. Yes. Great. All right. So let's start with verses 1 through 3, pent up. So as you look at verses 1 through 3, how David begins, and I, and I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. As I, I was mute and silent, I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me as I mused. The fire burned. Okay? I'm calling the first point pent up because you can't miss it as you read how the pressure is building from within him as he keeps silence in the presence of the wicked. So what is the setting then of verses 1 through 3? And here I'm giving you a hint, okay? In other words, what was David saying to himself and who was around him? Yeah, the wicked are around him, okay? So what's he saying to himself? Don't talk in their presence, right? Very simple, okay? He's got something to say. We don't know what he's got to say yet. We'll hear it as we move through the psalm, but something is really getting into his crawl, but he he does not say it in front of the wicked. I think that's very interesting. He didn't hit the send button. Or the post button. Very good. It is. Absolutely. So what is David keeping pent up? Maybe. What's David keeping pent up? Maybe anger for what? Possibly the wrongs done to him, possibly. Is that what you were thinking, Tony? Okay. Could be, could be he's angry because he's surrounded by the wicked. Okay, the sin around him, okay, that's possible. All those are all possibilities. The psalm actually tells you what he's, what he's really wrestling with, okay? But we'll have to get there. I just want to start the thinking. What is being pent up in him? Because when the boil gets lanced, it comes out later. Sorry, it's a bad analogy, but it works. When the boil gets lanced, it comes out later, and then you realize what he's doing and why he was restraining his lips. Okay, But for right now, you see he's starting to build up. Um, the pressure is building. Anybody ever do the Alka-Seltzer and the Pepsi, you know, the rockets, you know? That pressure builds up, and then push off it goes in the sky. Anybody ever done that? Am I the only one that's done that? Okay, good. All right. So David is keeping something pent up. Right now, we don't know for certain what it is. We have ideas, so we ought to keep that question in our head as we move along, okay? So how does verse 2 show up in Psalm 38, the previous psalm, and how does it show up later in Psalm 39, here in this psalm, Psalm 39? How does verse 2, listen again. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. My distress grew worse, etc. How does verse 2 show up in the previous psalm and then later again in this psalm? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In Psalm 38, verse 13 and 14. It was like a deaf man. I did not hear. I was a mute man. Did not open my mouth, right? Okay, there's Psalm 38, the connection there. Is there any, what else is it? It shows up again in Psalm 39. How does it show up in, in Psalm 39 later? Yeah, verse 9. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Uh, now we're starting to get an answer to our question as to why it, what's being pent up. Okay? But notice the muteness. So just keep... This is what I mean when I said at the very beginning when I read it. Did I, do you see the repeats? 
Those are things you watch for. And you start to see these interconnections between this psalm and the previous psalms and so forth. And then it pulls things together. I actually think Psalm 38, 39, and 40 were intentionally put together because they're, they're um, before something and after something. I think Psalm 40, when we get there, is the after something. Okay, But it's all related. 38, 39, and 40. All right. So the longer he keeps it pent up, whatever it is, What's happening to him? What's happening to him? It's right there in verses 1 through 3. Distress grew. His, his heart grew hot. It's burning inside. Anybody ever been in a situation where you just, you're just steaming on the inside and you know if you open your mouth, oh my goodness, fire and brimstone. The house is burning down, right? You just hold it right there, right? That's how he's feeling, but he's feeling it. We're back to the physical aspect of this, right? The physical outworking of some of these things, okay? All right? Um, Before we go any further, let me do this. I highly recommend this book here. John Calvin, Heart of Flame. Somebody went through... This is it right here. And if you look at mine, all the pages are falling out. I love it. It's a great little devotional, <laughs> devotional guide, ergo, object lesson. Right? And so it's just a delightful, it's a 365, 365-day devotional where the editor went through Calvin's commentary on the Psalms and he pulls out little snippets. So he's putting them in their context, but he pulls them in so that way you have one page per day and you're actually thinking about how... Calvin was working on those psalms. I highly recommend it. And so on Psalm 39, here's uh, what Calvin said. Since it was so hard a task for David to restrain his tongue, lest he should sin by giving way to complaints, let us learn from this example. Whenever troubles molest us to strive earnestly to moderate our affections, that no impious expression of dissatisfaction against God may slip from us, if therefore at any time we feel ardent emotions struggling and raising a commotion in our breasts, we should call to remembrance this conflict of David, that our courage may not fail us, or at least that our infirmity may not drive us headlong to despair. I think it's a great statement. Just the idea of you don't have it just because it's in your head, it doesn't have to come out of your mouth, right? a great statement. And I think that's what you see going on in Psalm 39. And so you're already getting a sense of that when you're dealing with the first three verses. And so let's talk about David's actions here. Ken's already brought this up, okay? We're going to find that David actually has some complaint, and the complaint is not about all the things we mentioned. Its complaint is actually with God. He is in grief with God because of something that rightly is happening to him and it's troubling him, but he restrains himself, okay? So David's action of verses 1 through 3 pushes against at least two mindsets that have taken front stage in our day. The first is the right of self-expression. In the words of Jonathan Dodson, who's a minister at a non-PCA church down in um, uh, Houston, I think, His book is called Our Good Crisis. He goes through, he's reflecting on the Beatitudes. He said this, If we believe that self-expression is our greatest right, we rarely exercise restraint. All you have to do is just get on social media for five minutes and you know what he's talking about, right? And so, I mean, Psalm 39, David is exercising restraint because he knows there's some things you just don't you just don't want to go out in public, especially in front of unbelievers, and just express. Okay? So I really do think that Psalm 39, 1 through 3 is pushing against that one. The other one is the sovereign individual. Now, Alan Noble, who wrote this, is a professor of English at OBU, Oklahoma Baptist University. And he actually, uh, even though he's a professed Baptist closet Presbyterian, did I say that? And goes to the Shawnee Presbyterian Church. He wrote this book called Disruptive Witness, and he says this. Outside of a culture of virtue grounded in an external source, 
science, technology, and the market have been driven to produce a society that prioritizes the sovereign individual. And we can unpack that because if you don't know this, that's what we're up against right now in huge quantities. Okay? But notice that, that, that this psalm is actually pushes against that kind of stuff. Because if I'm a sovereign individual, that means I can do whatever I want to and you better not get in my way. Right? Or I'm going to take you to court or I'm going to shame you in public or whatever happens because I have a right to my sovereign self. Does any of this sound really contemporary? Yeah. Okay. So I think exactly that, that the psalm actually pushes against those two concepts that are taking front stage today. So how does David's faithful action, think about verses 1 through 3, how does David's faithful action push, push against these two mindsets? What is he doing? He holds his tongue. Right? But then, here comes the surprise. It's going to be the next verse. It's the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. And somebody's already pointed this out. Okay? So now notice he's going to be played out. But here it is. David's last statement of verse 3 was, Then I spoke with my tongue. And it's at that moment at verse 3. You're expecting David to come out and he's going to grandstand on social media and he's going to be out on legacy media and he's going to rant and rave and pump his fists in the air and give those rotten yahoos a tongue lashing. That's what you expect when you come to the end of verse 3. What does he do instead? Where does he go? Verse 4. Huh? Yeah, to God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The big picture for everybody, but he goes when he speaks. I'm go- I couldn't hold it any longer, so I finally spoke, and here's what I said. Oh, Lord. Right? He goes to the Lord with this. Okay? That's pretty phenomenal, I think. Alright? Yes? Yeah. You know, in the context, mankind stands as a mere breath, etc. He's talking about the end of his days. Yes, it can. It's the context that tells you that's what he's talking about. Which is interesting that he would bring that up while he's, he's in this situation and he's, around, he's surrounded by wicked folks. He says, let me know how long I have left to live. Give me a sense that my days are short. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anybody ever do that? I used to watch my dad sometimes measure things with, you know, the, the, like that, right? You know, that horse is 15 hands high, right? That's that hand breadth, you know, 15 hand breadths, right? But isn't that interesting, that hand breadth? Very good. Yeah, so, and so right here, what catches, your unpre- uh, catches you unprepared at this point as he starts to voice his complaint, where does he go? We've already started talking about it. Where does he go? I'm sorry? He goes to the Lord, and then what does he, what does he address? Yeah, yeah. Right, right. I'm not God. My life is a handbreadth. You're the one who's eternal, right? So there's that aspect of it, right? But just that sense of the brevity of our days. How short life is. Okay? And you see that, like I said, there in verses 4 through 6. O Lord, make me know, O Yahweh, make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. So this is how I know, Pamela, that he's not talking about the end of this situation. He's talking about my life shortness because the parallel phrase is the very next one. Fleeting, how fleeting I am. Okay? And then, behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths of my lifetime is as nothing before you. That's what Mike is talking about. I'm temporary, you're not, right? Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, Selah. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Okay? So this whole section and much of this psalm sounds like he's almost praying Ecclesiastes. Anybody, does anybody's mind go to Ecclesiastes as you think about this psalm? Right? And that... Ecclesiastes is going to be written after this psalm. So Solomon was truly his son's, his dad's son, I guess you'd say, right? 
but that sense of fleeting. Now, why would that be important in the midst of, you know, something is building up in you, you're surrounded by the wicked, you restrain your lips, and now you come to the Lord, and the first thing out of your mouth is, help me to know how short my life is. Why would that be significant? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in face and against and opposition of the sovereign individual, let me know how insignificant I am in the time span of history. Right? Now, you may not know this, but every generation since I've been alive, every generation thinks it's the center of God's plan. Like it's the centerpiece of all of God's history. Okay? And this is why all these end times books since at least the 60s tell you the end is in our day and all of it is the emphasis is because we're that important and somebody i please lord please hopefully someday christians will finally say you know i'm gonna quit listening to all these people because they've been wrong every stinking time and God has something to say about people who say they're prophets and prophesy and are wrong. You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying anymore. I'm just saying that, right? And so the point is, that's David's point. I'm not the center of the universe. You are. I'm not the center of history. You are. So all the conflict that I feel right now, you know, I need to remember that. First thing up, I need to remember I'm temporary. So our oldest daughter, who hopefully will be here today, we had something going on. She actually married someone, and it was all kinds of things. Anyways, we were all uptight about it. My dad was dying with emphysema. And so we were just happened to be up here, and I was talking to my dad. And finally I said, Dad, what do you think about this? And he looks down at the little sat device. Where's Lisa? Is Lisa here? He looks at the little oxygen sat device on his finger. And through his gasping breath, he goes, In a hundred years, nobody will even know anything about this. Oh, you know, I didn't think about that, Dad. That's really helpful, you know? It kind of puts things in perspective because our moment is the most important moment, don't you know? And then that thought, and he's dealing with death. He was actually dying, and he was dealing with death, and just, it was one of those kinds of recognitions, okay? So it sounds like in the presence of the wicked, David has played out. Notice how he just seems exhausted by the time you get done with verse 6. He's just... Surely man goes like a shadow. They're like, they are, uh, they're nothing, uh, for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heats up wealth and does not know who will, who will gather it, right? He just seems like he's come to the end of himself there. He's played out, okay? So any, anything else you want to say on those verses before we move on? Any questions? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 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 And that's extremely important. Um, that that's humility. And God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's humility. Very good. Okay. So then comes verse seven. I really think the way it's done, the way the psalm is, it's like verse 7 becomes kind of the highlight in the sense that after verse 7, we're going to turn a corner. We're going to hear exactly what David's complaint was. So verse 7 is significant in the psalm, and I think it's a, if you want to call it a standalone verse or whatever, I don't know what you want to call it. But So just as David hits the button and is and is played out David lands in just the right spot very much like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress where does David land Look at verse 7 where does David land Yeah my hope is in you Whatever else I'm about to say I know this thing so it's almost like Psalm 73 when the writer of the psalm before he starts rehearsing how prosperous the wicked are he begins and says you know, this I know, that, that you're good to Israel, to those who are upright in heart, and I can trust you, you're good. And then he goes through and starts for 
like 14 verses, starts rehearsing how the wicked prospered. He almost lost his faith, so to speak. And then he comes back around. So he starts just the same way. Before he gets into his complaint, he actually plants himself here. It's like an anchor. If anybody ever been, a, been tent camping in a windy place, you know how important those anchors are, right? This is like a tent peg, an anchor, okay? But he, he comes to that place where no matter what else he's living with, he knows this. It's very much like Pilgrim and uh, Christian and Christian's progress and Pilgrim's progress. I'll get the name right here in a minute. Hold on. But Christian and Pilgrim's progress, right? As he's carrying his load, he is just desperate. As he goes through the slough of despond or the slough of despond, however you pronounce that, he just comes to the end of himself. But he knows he needs Jesus. And then that magic moment, if you want to call it that, when he comes to the cross and the load rolls off his back, he knows no matter what else. This is it, right? Sim- very similar. Okay? So, sounds, uh, what he says in verse 7 sounds close to chapter 38, Psalm 38 and verse uh, 9 and verse 15. We're back in the midst of all of that. David stops and says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. And then it's 38, 15. But for you, O Yahweh, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. Very similar coming back to this realization. And maybe that's something we need to think about. When we're going through it, sometimes when we go through the thick of whatever it is, it's the dark night of the soul, what do we almost always think about when we're going through a dark time? Nobody? Nobody's ever been through a dark time? Come on. Huh? How to get out of it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We think we're unique. This is only happening to me. Nobody else has ever experienced anything like it, you know? And then we're shocked when we find out somebody has. We st- yes? Yes. Yes! Ben and I had a conversation the other day. We were talking about falling into a pit. And all you can see in the pit is just the dirt walls. In Oklahoma, they're all red, by the way. You know, these dirt walls, and it's dark in there. And what you need is that help of that, some, that person outside the pit who can tell you, no, 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 there's sunshine out here. Let me help you up, right, and, pull, and help you out of the pit. That's what he's referring to. And that's exactly, very good. That's exactly it. When we get into the dark times, that's all we do almost always is we fall into a pit and we're consumed with ourselves we're the only ones who've experienced this. We're, we're, we're just stuck in a rut. And anybody know what a rut is? It's a grave with both sides kicked out. Right? That was an Air Force thing. I remember that growing up when we were in the Air Force. So, but it, we get stuck in there. And notice what David does. He, he says, no matter how I'm going, what I feel, what I'm going through, I know this is the truth. And I wait for you. I hope in you. Okay? I think that's really helpful. That's how we should, as we approach those things, maybe stop for a moment instead of spinning around in our heads, obsessing on whatever it is that really is tearing us up and think about the Lord just for a moment and declare who He is and what He has done, is doing, and will do for His people. So, have you... Well, we already kind of talked about this. Have you ever experienced a moment like this where you're all played out, you have no other resources, no energy, no fight left? Anybody? Maybe once or twice? Okay. So what happens in this verse is going to change the direction of the psalm in the coming verses. So this is kind of like we're turning a corner. This is the corner verse. We're turning the corner, and now we're going to find out what was being pent up in him and what he would not express in front of the wicked. Okay? It's going to pick up in this next section. So praying on, verses 8 through 11. Deliver me from all, what? My transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I, have, I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you dis- discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. So there are like three layers of trouble going on in verses 8 to 11 for David. So what are the three layers? Let's talk about them briefly and how they fit together. What are the three layers of his trouble? 
Yes, transgression, his own transgression, and he feels God's hand of discipline on him. There's two. What's the other layer? It is discipline, yes. But there's one more layer. Alright, it's in verse 8. I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 8. It's like in the second half of verse 8. Can I tell you any more hints? Huh? Scorn of the fool. So notice that. We're back to what we dealt with in the previous psalm, in Psalm 38 and, uh, and, and, and uh, sometimes before that, where... It's not just the fact that I've sinned and you're right to discipline me, but the fact that I don't want to be part of and I'm feeling the pressure from the scorn of the fool. Right? So there's three layers to David's to what David is feeling right now, what he's, what he's talking about, his trouble that he's got. Right? So some of it, he's owning up that he is the culprit. And he's owning up to the fact that God is right to discipline him. But he's also troubled by the scorn of the fool. Yes? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Scorn, just the taunting, the sneering. Well, they watch him fall, they watch him sin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. Fools despise wisdom and instruction in the book of Proverbs, right? So, I'm sorry? Right. There's some, some sense in which it's very obvious, and he knows it. He's not denying it, which I appreciate that. But then the consequences in this situation is the fact that he's getting that pressure from people who are taunting him for having, um, owning his own sin and, and those things. Yeah. And the fact that God is disciplining him. So it's also the discipline. As Kelly was talking about, it's God's discipline, which also, you'll notice, comes out in different ways also. He feels it, not just knows it, but he feels it. Okay? So the word mute takes us back to verse thir- uh, chapter 38, verse 13, and chapter 39, verses 2 through 3. It's just a th- it just keeps coming up. I was mute, I was mute, I was mute. I, right? And so this is one of those moments where he's just dumbfounded. He's restraining his tongue because he knows he shouldn't say anything about this in the presence of the wicked. And he, but he is dumbfounded in the sense of he just didn't know what to do with it. He didn't know what else to do. So he's, he's pouring this out, but he just feels... Speechless. Anybody ever felt speechless? I mean, where you're just so befuddled by something, you just don't even know what to say. And you know if you say anything, it's just going to be gibberish or whatever, you know. Yeah. And so verse 10 sounds like it goes along with what? What does verse 10 sound like it goes along with? Verse 10, let's read it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. What does it sound like it goes with? How about like the beginning of chapter 38? O oh, Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath, for your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come upon me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation, etc. Right? Just that connection again. And so sometimes God's rebukes are felt, I mean, physically even. Right? As He disciplines. And remember, does God discipline as a drunken tyrant who's just having a fit. When God disciplines His people, is He disciplined like a drunken tyrant who's just having an emotional fit, like Zeus often did, and Jupiter, right? No. How does He discipline His people? As a father. Right? And think about when you were a kid, those of you who got disciplined, you remember that moment when mom or dad got mad at you and it was like, you started bawling in tears, and you're hurting inside and everything, but you know they love you. It just hurt. You did something stupid, and you got disciplined, and it hurts, right? 
and fatherly discipline, parent, parental discipline is, is a good thing. And so as, remember that as we're talking about this. This is fatherly discipline. He feels it. He's really feeling it. So why is verse 11 significant? I don't know, Mike. That's why I came to this class. You tell me. It's, it, it's, it's, it's interesting to me the way he talks about the discipline and rebukes for sin. You consume like a moth what is dear to him. Man is like a hand breath. Right? You consume what is dear to him. Just the, There are consequences to our sins. right? And some of the consequences are the Father's discipline. Sometimes it is taking away what is dear to us. I mean, so dying is like that. You know, where slowly over a period of time, especially a long death, you begin to have less and less concerns that you used to have. Right? That's, if things are going well, that's when you begin to downsize. Right? That's when you start giving things away. You know, I really don't need this after all. And you start, because it's being, what was dear to you is now being consumed as it were. Right? It's something very similar to that. Okay. It's a heavy subject. So I want you to think of, when you think about God's discipline, think about 1 Corinthians 11, 32. In the, in the midst of communion, Paul's talking about how they have butchered communion in their actions. And then he talks about how, so that's why some of you have been sick and some of yours folks have died because God's physical discipline. But then Paul says this gospel promise right in the middle of that. When we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. Did everybody hear that? When we're judged by the Lord, we're being disciplined by a father so that we're not condemned along with the world. The father's discipline is good for us. Okay. All right, anybody on those verses? Anything else on those? We're back to the brevity of life again. No? Okay, let's move on then. Parting words, verses 12 and 13. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with my fathers, a guest like a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. So David's parting words are a what? What are they? Did you look at them? They're a prayer. Is that what you said too? Yes, they're a prayer. Okay? He ends by, by giving himself to the Lord, right? He's commending himself to the Lord. Um, but he's also doing something else in there with that. Yes. Yeah. 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 I wonder if this was not written at the end of his life and this is after he did the counting of Israel's population and he sinned against the Lord in doing that. I wonder if this is not that moment when he finally went, oh, I was wrong. Right? And, yeah. Didn't say that, but that's what I wonder. Alright, so where, have you ever been in a situation where verse 12, the first part of verse 12 was a fitting part of your prayer? When you said, hear my prayer, O Lord, or O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Have you ever been in a situation where that's, that's a very fitting thing to say? Give ear to my cry. Yeah, Mandy's situation. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay? So why is the rest of verse 12 a healthy recollection? Hold not your peace. Oh, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. What is that a good reminder of that this psalm is all about? Yeah. His small place. I'm sorry? Yeah, a small place in the world, in his history, God's sovereignty. Yeah, right. Yes. Uh, we don't believe in reincarnation, by the way. He's referring to something else. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Good. So you look at verse 13. What is verse 13 calling for? It's an interesting way for him to write it. What's it calling for? Look away. Well, that's what it feels like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go look at Bob for a while, would you please? Right? Yeah, but it's basically, yeah, it's basically give me a little relief before I go. Right? I mean, that's really, in this essence, the sense of that. Verse 13, just, just, please, just remove your hand of discipline for a little while before I go. Okay? Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah, as the Lord's anointed, there's still hope, yeah. I mean, you can't miss, I mean, you, you read through that, and then, we've done this enough, you go back to Gethsemane, you go back to... Um, to the cross, you keep hearing this, some of these same things over and over again. As David is, the, is, is Messiah, David is the anointed one, Messiah, all of this kind of should rightly get you always looking in the end towards Jesus in that, right? So Psalm 39 by itself has no resolution. You notice how it ends. There's no resolution in the sense of a rescue, right? There's no end. It's like, I'm going to die just turn away for a little bit so I can have a moment of reprieve. And that's where it ends. There's no sense of uh, rescue. And yet, verses 12 through 13 move organically almost right into Psalm 43. So I'm going to read verse 12 and 13 and then read Psalm 40 verses 1 through 3. Listen to how this goes. Hear my prayer, O Yahweh, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears, for I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. To the choir master of Psalm of David, I waited patiently for Yahweh. You inclined to me and heard my cry. And you drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon a rock, etc. So Psalm 40, I think, is the intentional resolution that you're left hanging, that, that doesn't, you don't feel in Psalm 39. Right? This is why I think Psalm 38, 39, and 40 or intentionally packaged together because they tell a story and then you end with this resolution in Psalm 40, which we'll look at more next week. And so then, in what ways does our Lord's time, oh, we were just talking about this, does our Lord's time in the Garden of Gethsemane mirror or echo Psalm 39? I mean, think about the, the emotional aspect of what David is exhibiting in Psalm 39. I'll give you a reference here to Mark uh, 14. And they went to a place called Gethsemane and his disciples, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. Going a little further, he fell on the ground. He didn't kneel down. He didn't kneel down. I hope you're hearing that. He didn't just kneel down. He fell to the ground. His legs were kicked out from underneath him under the weight of the grief that he had. Right? And you're thinking about Psalm 39, you go, oh, there's so much of this fits in with our Lord Jesus. Right? And he fell on the ground and he prayed. And he said, if possible, let this cup pass for me, etc. So much of this weaves into our Lord's own actions. And so, again, going back to Calvin, if therefore at any time, we read this at the beginning, if therefore at any time we feel ardent emotions struggling and raising a commotion in our breasts, we should call to remembrance this conflict of David. So in what ways does this psalm help us in grasping Calvin's encouragement there? Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. It's odd how really comforting that is in the midst of the grief. What else? Okay. 
Yeah? It is temporary. There is an expiration date, one way or the other. Yeah, yeah, he's going to be with us. He's not going to walk away from us. Okay? The fact that David has some, you know, is really going through the, the difficulties, but he restrains himself so he doesn't just shout it out in front of the wicked. Because why? Because he wants to testify to God's goodness. He doesn't want to run around spreading things that will, you know, the wicked can latch onto and use against God's people and, and so forth, right? So that's self-restraint and, and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Trust, yeah, I wait on the Lord. It's trusting in His timing, yeah. So no matter what load you're carrying right now, how does Psalm 39 prepare you for worship? I had to go there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's very helpful. We're going to walk into the assembly and we're going to look around with our eyeballs and we're going to see maybe 120, whatever, and think, wow, this is it. But no, it's not it. Right? There's a huge body of believers on earth right now all worshiping at the same time. And then, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, we're entering into the heavenly assembly with the, the spirits of, the, of, the, of the, the saints made perfect. Right? So the worship, worship is huge. We're just a little speck in it. Yes. Yep. Right. Right. Yes. Absolutely. Yep. Even even in the suffering. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> Yeah. Hey, anybody else? So I'm going to pray here in just a minute and close this to get us ready for worship, but I want you to know I have a new book out. Whoop, 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 whoop. And there are free copies at the front, and it says free. It means free. All right? So grab you a copy. If you already got a copy, grab one for your in-laws or outlaws or whatever, right? Grab them one too. But there's copies. They're there for you to take with you, and I hope you'll read those. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we thank you for David's testimony. Forgive us for the times when we've not restrained our lips, but we have blabbed and exploded with our emotions and words and ways that do not honor you. And um, we pray that you would grow us in that self-restraint. It's not the sovereign self, it's the sovereign Lord. And so Lord, we pray that you would help us that when we go through those seasons like David is describing there, that we would always remember who you are and uh, what you have done or doing and will do for your people, that we would always know, Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And now as we get ready to gather into the great assembly, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit as we sing and talk about Pentecost a little bit today, that we would be refreshed, our, our hearts would be refreshed, and we would lift them up in praise and thanksgiving to you. In Jesus' name, amen.